and we're continuing our series on Judges. If you have not been with us, we've been walking through Judges and preaching through the book of Judges, and it is a very, very relevant book for us today, although it's not often preached. Um, there's a couple of narratives from Judges, and we're about to jump into one that is often preached, um, but as the book as a whole many times uh, has been ignored and really to our peril. It is, a, it is an incredible book, um, and so if you would turn there with me, if you have your Bibles, if you do not have your Bibles, um, it'll be up on the screen. We are in Judges chapter 13, and we're going seri- to begin a series of messages um, in the life of one of, I would say, the most famous judges, and he's the last judge, and that is Samson. So we are beginning the life of Samson this morning in Judges chapter 13. Pray with me. God, we come this morning, we worship you. Really, that's what we are gathered here to do this morning, is to worship you. You are a good God. You're gracious. You are merciful. We see displayed throughout your word and throughout our lives your incredible mercy, and we reflect on that this morning. I pray that you would grasp our hearts through your word this morning, that you would somehow illuminate to us that, that, that the word of God, the story that we know so well would light up in us and that you would enable us to understand it, to hear it, to have it transform us, to have it allow us to get to know you better and who you are and your grace and your mercy in our lives. Be glorified in this place this morning. Let your word be heard. Let your name through your word be known that you would receive glory from it. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. So Judges chapter 13, we are beginning the life of Samson. This is the narrative that describes the birth of Samson. We're going to read it together, verses 1 through 25 this morning. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorro, not Zorro, not the, the swordsman, I said that wrong, not Antonio Banderas. There was a certain man of Zora, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren. And have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful. Drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of an angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord, and he said, O God, please let the man of God whom you sent, come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah. And the angel of the Lord came again to the woman, and she sat in the field, as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah rose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life? He's got a lot of questions. And what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine. Neither let her drink wine or strong drink 
or eat any unclean thing, all that I commanded her, let her observe. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then I will then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he, I'm sorry, yeah, for, for Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. Wonderful. So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah, his, I'm sorry, and Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would have not accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. The woman bore a son, called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Menadan between Zorah and Eshtal. I said that wrong. Sorry. It's the word of the Lord. Amen? What, a, what an incredible story as we begin the Samson narrative. We see, leading into Samson, as we've been walking through the Judges, this continual cycle that we have been talking about week after week. And what the author of the book of Judges has done is, is they, he's picked these narratives to display a very particular narrative, a very particular theme or purpose as we see in the history of Israel this walking away from the Lord, as we saw Joshua and Moses uh, God brought through Moses the law of God, began to explain who he was. Remember Moses in the burning bush, I am that I am. And he, for, for the first time, really declared to Moses who he is. And God began to interact with his chosen people, and he brought them out of the land of Egypt, and he brought them into the promised land. And Joshua led them into the promised land. And now as we see the beginning of the book of Judges, Joshua has died and everything that God really had spoken to them and engaged them in, in terms of how do you relate to each other, how do you relate to me as your God, the one and only true God, this law that he had set out for them to follow and to engage in, as they moved into the land of the Canaanites and Joshua died, we see that they did not wipe out, as God had declared or ordered them to do, all the people of that land, and they began to mix in the land of the Canaanites. And as we look at the history of the people of Israel through the book of Judges, we see this cycle of, of the people of Israel mixing in with the, the people of the land of Canaan and beginning to worship their gods, beginning to add Baal and, and Ashtoreth, these, these other gods of the Canaanites, and, and worship them in, in mixture of their worship of, of Yahweh, the one true God, beginning to live in this, in this culture and, and adapt to the culture. And what God would do is, is, as they walked away from him, he would leave them to their own devices. And, and they would be disciplined because God loved them. And, and as other nations would come in and take them over and oppress them, they would come to a place where they cried out to God in the midst of their oppression. And what we saw as we've walked through the book of Judges is this cry out to God. It wasn't repentance. It wasn't turn me, God. It wasn't change me, God. It wasn't help me to follow you better, God. It was help me, God, we're in trouble. This hurts. And God, because God is faithful, right? This is the message we've been seeing over and over. Just a quick recap. Because God is faithful to his promises and to his people and to his covenant, he would raise up a judge, not a judge with a black robe and a gavel, really a judge that looks more like Braveheart, a warrior, someone who would come and would conquer and defeat the enemies of God. And then you would see these moments 
of peace. And as we've been watching over and over and over again, these judges are imperfect. These moments of peace are becoming shorter and shorter. And the people of Israel's acclamation to their culture and acclamation to the, to the Canaanites and the people that they're around becomes greater and greater. So what many would call a cycle of sin, oppression, crying out to God, in deliverance, sin, oppression, cry out to God, deliverance, sin, oppression, cry out to God, deliverance, is less of a cycle. And what we're seeing here as we walk into the Samson narrative is this has become a downward spiral. It's getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And so we come into Judges chapter 13, verse 1, and the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. And then it walks into the birth of Samson, who really is in this narrative, although imperfect, a savior, a type of savior for the people of Israel. So again, the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. What's missing in this narrative that we've seen in every other narrative? They don't cry out. See, what we've seen before is we've seen the people of Israel sin, walk away from God, disregard his law and who he is, and then God would uh, allow them to be oppressed. And then in the midst of their oppression, in the midst of their difficulty, in the midst of their struggle, when, when another nation is occupying them, they would cry out to God for help. And we have gotten to a place in the history of the people of Israel where they're not even crying out for help anymore. In fact, later on, you'll see in the Samson narrative that when Samson goes to battle with the Philistines, the people of Israel get mad. Hey, listen, buddy, don't rock the boat. Why are you messing with the Philistines? What's happening here? We're seeing the people of Israel so acclimated to their oppression, so uh, adjusted to where they, they don't even see that they're oppressed anymore. They don't even see that they're really living in abject rejection and sin anymore. In fact, they're so comfortable in their oppression, they don't even want Samson to mess with it. Don't rock the boat. What an unbelievable place we see the people of Israel at this time. And yet it's not unlike us, is it? They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. July 16, 1999. Some of you may remember this. It's one of those things that a lot of people remember where they were when they heard John F. Kennedy Jr. got into an airplane with his wife and his sister-in-law. He was heading to the wedding of his cousin in Martha's Vineyard. John F. Kennedy Jr. was an inexperienced pilot. He was what they call VFR rated, which is like visual flight rule. He was able to fly his plane when he was able to see what was going on. He was only rated to fly a plane when he could see what's going on, and, and he got a bad weather report. The weather report said there was nine miles worth of visibility when really there wasn't. He had a, a sprained ankle and a cast on, probably could not navigate well the pedals, which would turn the plane left and right, but he got into the plane anyway. An instructor of his volunteered to go with him, and he said, no, I'm going to go on my own. And he went on his own with his wife and his sister-in-law, and the plane went missing. Anybody remember this? And they searched and searched and searched and realized that, they find that he had crashed into the ocean, and the bodies, all three bodies were recovered, still strapped to their seats. Tragedy in the Kennedy family again. As they began to investigate the crash, what they realized is that John F. Kennedy Jr. was only visual flight rated, and he was not what's called IFR, which would have been a pilot who was experienced enough to fly in the midst of clouds and haze and trust in what? The instruments. 
And what they surmise from the investigation is that he must have been disoriented. That as he was flying, that he, he got into a haze, he got into the clouds that he didn't expect to be there, and he was adjusting his radio, which was on a bad frequency, and he probably looked down to adjust the frequency, and even if he tipped the plane a little bit to the left or a little bit to the right, and it began to go in a particular way, he would have visually, in the midst of a cloud where he couldn't tell what was up from down, what was left from right, he would have become disoriented. And very trained pilots are able to ignore what their brain is telling them and ignore what their senses are telling them and just look at the instruments and fly according to the instruments. In fact, he could have hit the autopilot, which he never engaged, which would have corrected what was happening. But what they believed happened with John F. Kennedy Jr. is he became completely disoriented, was not an experienced enough pilot to trust his instruments and ignore what his brain and his senses were telling him, and he flew unknowingly directly into the ocean. What a sad tragedy. I was thinking about that story as I was reading this story. Because what we see with the people of Israel is they're completely disoriented. They're completely acclimated to their culture. They're completely acclimated to the Canaanite people. They're completely acclimated to the, the culture and the philosophy and the worship, the idol worship of their day, and they have lost their bearings on how they are to be behaving and how they're to be engaging God and how they're to be living their lives in relationship to each other and in relationship to God. And they've completely walked away from the Lord and they are heading towards massive destruction. And instead of trusting the law of God that he's given them, that he's laid out for them, they're trusting what feels right and what seems right in their own eyes. Right? What does the word of God tell us? And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Later on, we see at the end of the judge's narrative, two times it says in chapter 17 and in chapter 21 that the people did what was what? Right in their own eyes. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, yet they did what was right in their own eyes. You see, this isn't a, a situation where they are actively, knowingly, deliberately recognizing their sin and engaging in it. The sin that the people of Israel are engaging in seems right in their own eyes, but it's evil in the sight of the Lord. The sin and the oppression that they're totally used to, that they're now comfortable in their oppression and in their sin, in the, in the lifestyle that they're engaging in, seems right. It seems like the way to go. And in the same way, he, he, JFK Jr. was seemingly going with his senses and what seemed right and what seemed to be up, what seemed to be down, what seemed to be left or right. He was engaging his senses instead of trusting his instruments. The people of Israel were doing what was right in their own eyes, but it was evil in the sight of the Lord. And there's a question for us here today, is whose eyes matter? Whose eyes matter? What's evil or right in God's eyes? Or what's right in our eyes? Folks, this is a tough question for us today. We live in a Canaanite culture. We live in a postmodern society that the philosophy of it is you do what's right for you. You determine what's right or wrong based on how you feel about what's right or wrong. Is that not the culture of today? No one could challenge the radical individualism of our postmodern culture today, our philosophy from Immanuel Kant through the, from the Enlightenment through uh, uh, Immanuel Kant through the, the, the perceptions of, of, a, of a modern and then postmodern culture when anything can be true, what's true for you is true for you, what's true for me is true for me, and don't you dare question what I believe or feel is true for me because then you're questioning my identity and who I am, and that's incredibly offensive today. You can't do that. 
I do what's right in my own eyes, what feels right to me, what seems right to me. And, and, and we have a, a culture today where, where that has seeped into the body of Christ, has it not? They did what was right in their own eyes, but it was evil in the sight of the Lord. Think of any number of things that we could address, that we could talk about in relationship to what's right in our own eyes, what seems to be true for me in the way that I want to behave, in the way that I want to engage other people or I want to engage God. It just seems right. It just seems right. And honestly, to call people to the, to the scriptures, to the word of God, and to say, but, but God says, but God says this, but God says that, in today's culture seems archaic. It seems crazy. It seems like, it, how, could you, how could you think that way? It, it seems countercultural for us to hold ourselves to the standard of God. And I think as the body of Christ, as Christians, we have to ask ourselves in our lives, is Christ really king? Is the word of God really the authority by which we live our lives? I mean, there, there is... There are so many things the Word of God addresses in response to the gospel on how we are to worship God with our lives, on how we are to respond to His incredible salvation and grace, and then in turn live in a particular way where we worship God with our lives. And, and there's so many things that the Word of God addresses that we could spend time articulating while not only does it bring glory to God to live a particular way, but it's better for you and me to live a particular way. But even if it wasn't, if God said it, Shouldn't we do it? Tim Keller was just speaking in front of Parliament. Maybe some of you saw the video floating around YouTube. Dr. Keller was at the prayer breakfast in front of British Parliament not too long ago, speaking in front of the Prime Minister and the House of Lords and the House of Commons and and he was addressing them, and the question before him was remarkable. The question they asked Tim Keller to answer was, what does Christianity have that it could add to our culture today? And Tim Keller addressed this question absolutely brilliantly, as he always does. And it's actually really almost a, it's a very interesting question to say, what could Christianity add to our culture today? quote unquote, in light of the reality of our culture and where most things we believe come from, right? And Tim Keller addressed that very brilliantly. He went, he went back and he said, well, let's talk about what Jesus said. Jesus used the metaphor and he said, we are to be salt. What does salt do? Salt, salt brings out the flavor in the meat, right? Thinking about grilling today, anybody? Salt brings out the flavor of the meat. It brings out the best in the meat. What else does salt do? Salt preserves. It, it keeps something from degrading or degenerating. And he said, Jesus used the metaphor where he asked Christians to be salt. And he went back into history and he talked about, he talked about Christianity and, and Western civilization and what we believe today. He gave a metaphor of a woman in a wheelchair who would be wheeling down the street. And, and a professor used to ask his class this question. He would say, if you walk upon this woman and you, and you see that she's carrying a lot of jewelry and has a lot of money and you could steal it from her and she'd never be able to overpower you or stop you. She'd never be able to identify you because she can't see very well and she's an older woman and it's dark outside. And number three, in this particular scenario, it's not even illegal or against the law from you to steal from her. Would you do it? And as he articulated, he said, most of the class of this professor would say, no, we would never do it. And he asked them, okay, so 90% of them say they would not steal from her. Why would you not steal from her? And some people would say, because it would make me weak. It would cause me to be a weaker person for me to take from someone like that. And then most of the students would say, we wouldn't steal from her because of how it, it would affect her, how it would change her, how it would be terrible for her to be without her money, to be without her jewelry, how it would be wrong for her to be stolen from because she's a weaker person. And Keller, I began to identify in front of Parliament this other-oriented ethic that people have intuitively in them 
as they've grown up in Western civilization. And Keller cried out the problem. He said, where do you think that comes from? When the monks engaged the Romans and the Romans who had a shame and honor culture, which honored beyond all things strength, honored beyond all things power, and they encountered the monks in history and the Christians, the, the Christians, over, they, they won that cultural battle historically. In Western civilization, you saw a savior who gave his life, who looked to others, who declared, think of others more highly than yourself, love others, treat others how you want to be treated, what people call secularly the golden rule. It didn't come from secularism. The idea that anyone has an other-centered ethic came from how God told us to relate to each other and relate to him because of a savior who died for us. And Keller looked at them and said, what does Christianity have to add to the culture today? What a silly question. Consensual sexual, sexual activity. Where do you think that comes from? You think the Romans engaged in that? A woman could not refuse a man, particularly a man of higher station. A man who was a noble and someone who was a peasant could, could never say, I'm refusing someone sexually or physically. They just took it because it was a shame and honor culture. It was the Christians who said sexual activity should be between consenting parties in a covenant relationship. What Keller declared to the British leadership was you now have a postmodern culture with high moral ideals. Equality for women, equality for any marginalized or oppressed smaller group of people. You have high moral ideals, a high moral ethic, but you have no moral source for why you even believe that. Why do we believe in equality for women? Because everyone's created in the image of God. Where do you think it comes from? Who was the first person to speak out against slavery in 300 B.C.? It was a Christian monk who said, you can't own another person because God created us all and we're all in the image of God. And how could you own an image bearer of God? And we live in a postmodern culture that wants to have high moral ideas, ideals about how everyone else should behave, yet no one can tell anybody what to do. Does that make any sense? If you believe what's true for you is true for you, and it's what you feel to be true in and of yourself becomes the truth, how could anyone have spoken to the Nazis and said, killing the Jewish people in a genocidal way is wrong? So then we ask ourselves, what prevents a Holocaust? Is it we just believe what's true for us and you believe what's true for you? Does the community decide what's true? Does the culture decide what's true? Then, then if the entire German culture, led by Hitler, believed that they were doing humanity a favor by exterminating the Jews, who gets to tell them they're wrong and why? We live in a postmodern culture that has done away with a God, done, a, done away with an exclusive claim that anyone could claim to have any understanding of a standard or truth those exclusive claims get thrown away and everybody decides for themselves. Yet you better agree with me or I'm going to be mad at you and you're going to be personally offending me if you disagree with my own personal view of truth for myself. It's untenable, isn't it? Philosophically, it doesn't even make sense. Postmodernism is going to collapse inside of itself. It doesn't make sense. Yet we will pay thousands, tens and tens of thousands of dollars for our kids to spend four years listening to this garbage. Sorry, that was a little soapbox thing on the side. We live in a culture that is completely acclimated to the people around us. And I guess my cry to you and to myself as I read this, personally, is I better start scrambling back to the standard trusting in the instruments, looking at what does God say is true? What does God say is the way for me to live and love and interact with people? 
Why do I love my wife more than I love myself? Why do I treat my, peop- my, my, my children in a particular way and raise them in a particular way? Why do I work hard at work? Why do I ser- a- a- attempt to serve others? Why do I attempt to, to show myself worthy? Why-, why do I do particular things? And the reality is, it's because it's what God says in light of this incredible gospel and Savior that we have in Jesus Christ. Amen? That's the truth. That's the truth of the word of God, and it's so easy for me. I mean, I, I can yell about the culture and colleges and universities and whatever, but, but the reality is, is I need to get introspective, and I need to look at my own life. What are the idols in my life? What are the things that I've put in the place of God in my own life? What are the ways that the culture has seeped into my life, and I'm pursuing the, the Baals and the Asteros instead of Christ? And it, and it happens so subtle. Tim Keller says that idols aren't always bad things. Idols are good things that we make into ultimate things, right? Idols in our life very often are very good things that we, that we make ultimate pursuits. can happen very quickly. can happen very simply. Tim Keller says this about this narrative. This teaches us two truths about sin. First, the definition of sin. This term, eyes of the Lord, in contrast with our own eyes, teaches us that sin does not ultimately consist of violating our conscience or violating our personal standards or violating community standards, but rather consists of violating God's will for us. Many of us can be living in a way that is consistent with our conscience, consistent with our community standard, and consistent with how everybody's acting around us and what would be acceptable, but in reality, we're in violation of what God's will is for our lives. How many times over the years, people struggling through difficulty just say, you know what? I'm going to do this, I'm going to get a divorce. And I really believe it's okay. really believe that Jesus is all right with it. In regards to my marriage, it's time for it to end because we're not happy. And you come back to this. What's God's will? Well, this, this is going to be very difficult. We're going to not be happy for a while. And what you see in the word of God is that God ultimately... It's not for your happiness. Well, but in my culture, that's the penultimate goal, right? That's what Oprah says. Here's the 15 ways for me to be happy. The Word of God says is that your happiness is fleeting and it's temporal. It's not for your happiness. I'm for your joy. And he's for his glory. And that's an entirely different So am I pursuing happiness above all else, or am I pursuing Christ because Christ is my ultimate treasure and Christ is my ultimate joy? And sometimes pursuing Christ is at the expense of my temporal happiness. Sometimes pursuing Christ means I don't go on the vacation and I write a check to something else. Sometimes pursuing Christ means I engage in a relationship and I forgive even when I'm really mad and they don't deserve it. But I'm going to forgive and I'm going to pursue the relationship anyway. Sometimes pursuing Christ means my marriage isn't about my happiness, but it's about the other person's happiness. And it means I have to live to outserve the person I'm in covenant with, even though they don't like it at the time or don't deserve it or continually to hurt me. I'm going to live to outserve them. And I'm going to see where God takes that in terms of my joy. Sometimes pursuing Christ means I find my treasure in my joy in the depth of, of my heart that, that, that brings me this joy that goes beyond my ability to understand as the, scripture, as the scripture talks about. I find that in doing what God told me to do and not doing what I feel like doing today because it might make me happy in the moment. Is everybody hearing what this message is saying to us from Judges today? This is hard. 
This, I'm preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to anybody sitting here this morning. What the word of God is saying to me this morning is I need to get introspective. I need to get reflective. And I need to, and I need to carefully look at my own life and ask myself, is my pursuit of my job gone beyond just wanting to do a good job and becoming idolatry? Is my hard work crossing that thin line into becoming an idol of work? Is my love for my family and my children crossing a line into making an idol of my family and children? <coughs> my love of entertainment and relaxation becoming my penultimate goal instead of pursuing Christ and finding my joy and relaxation and rest in Him. See, all of those things, hard work, family, entertainment, those things are good things, but they become idols when we make them ultimate things. And then we begin to make decisions not based on the Word of God, but on how we feel. We have to constantly evaluate ourselves, do we not? We have to constantly be together and worship together and engage brothers and sisters of Christ in terms of accountability. It's really hard to see the picture when you're in the frame, is it not? And we need other people in our lives. I've needed throughout my life other people in my lives who love Christ to look at me and say, no, 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 no. Jeremy, you're doing that for selfish reasons. No, no, Jeremy, that's stupid. You, you shouldn't be pursuing that because you're not doing it in a way that God would want you to. I constantly have to open myself to brothers and sisters in Christ to look at me and to evaluate with me and call me out on stuff. And if you're not engaged in those types of relationships, it's going to be very hard to see what God's calling you to do in the midst of a culture that's very, very attractive. That's why the body of Christ is so important. That's why we need to be together Constant reflection in the Word of God. If we're not reading the Word of God, if we're not engaging the Word of God, we're not going to know what the instruments say. We're not going to know what the standard is. So easy. We're, we're so prone to self-deception, are we not? I mean, what is the, we say this all the time, what's the Disney Channel message to our kids, you know, forever? What is the, what is the, the message of Oprah or the world today to everybody? Follow your heart. Do what your heart says. Do what you feel. Just... Just the ultimate goal for you is to just be who you are and follow your heart. That's not what the Word of God says at all. The Word of God says your heart is deceitful and wicked. Who can know it? We are so prone to self-deception and to deceiving ourselves and to thinking we're okay. And the Word of God says the absolute opposite. Pursue and follow Christ. Even when our heart's telling us we don't want to. We rationalize so easy materialism and worry and bitterness and pride. We rationalize it. God's calling us back to be self-reflective. The Puritan writer Thomas Brooks wrote, Satan paints sin with virtuous colors. Sometimes we're, we, we, we think we're being so virtuous. And it's not really what God wills in our lives. So we come to this narrative in Samson and we see really a narrative that's not about Samson. And what's, what's difficult in the Samson narrative is very easy to be attracted to and distracted by how entertaining Samson is and how cool the guy is, although he's really messed up. And the narrative of Samson as we address it gets very detailed and it actually becomes a lot about the details of Samson's life. But really ultimately what this is about folks, is it's about a God who saves, not the Savior that God raises up. You hear me? Samson is not so much about the Savior that God raises up, but it is about the God who saves. Amen? So we have a people completely distracted by their culture, completely unrepentant, not crying out to God for his help, and he still comes to this woman who's nameless in the Bible. We don't even get her name. He still comes to this woman who's barren, and he says, I am going to give you a son, and Samson is going to save the people. God, in his mercy and in his grace, is saving a people who aren't even looking for him. 
Think about that for a minute. If God only helped us when we asked him for it and prayed, oh, would we be in trouble. Oh, would I be in trouble. God saved me when I was still a sinner. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I wasn't looking for him. I wasn't interested in him. I didn't even know I needed him. And he came and he reached into my life and he saved me with a perfect savior who's so much better than Samson and who saved me not just for a little while as Samson does with the people of Israel, but Jesus saved me forever. His salvation was perfect and it finished saving me all the way to the end. Amen? Saved me from my greatest problem. You as well. If you rely on him. So we see that, that, that this woman will have a son. And Manoah, the husband, hears that an angel had come to her. And he says, man, I want to hear from this. Well, he doesn't know it's an angel at the time. I want to hear from this guy. What's he saying? I, need to, I got some questions. I need to know about this. And what we see is that, that Samson was ordained by God to be a Nazarite from before his birth. Now we see this Nazarite vow in Numbers chapter 6. And, and, and what we see about the Nazarite vow is this was a very special, very specific vow. This was a vow where you didn't cut your hair, you didn't eat anything unclean. And by the way, none of the people of Israel were supposed to eat anything unclean, according to the law of God. But that's how far the culture had slipped, that they're actually pointing this out for the Nazarite. Don't cut your hair, you don't eat anything unclean, you don't touch anything dead, no dead bodies, no funerals, because it's a symbol of, of, of being unclean and you are setting yourself aside. And normally the Nazarite vow would be for a, a specific period of time. It would be for a couple of months or it would be for a couple of years that someone would take this Nazarite vow. But what we see is that God looks to a woman who's barren to show that only God saves and only God can do this miracle. And God comes to her and he says, you're going to have a son. And that son is going to be a Nazarite even from before birth. The mother wasn't to touch strong drink. The mother wasn't to eat anything from the fruit of the vine. The mother was to engage in the Nazarite vow while Samson was in her womb. And he wasn't just to be a Nazarite for a, a specific set-aside period of time, but he was to be a Nazarite from birth till his death for his entire life. God declaring to us that he saves. He is, he is mercifully and graciously going to save his people with someone who he has set apart in a miraculous birth that only he can do. That's what we see in the birth of Samson. This Nazarite vow, the purpose was to ask God for help in a crucial time. That's what the Nazarite vow was for. And God comes and shows that he is going to bring help in this very crucial time through the life of Samson. God does the impossible. We see in the life of Sarah, when she has Isaac, that she was barren, and God provided miraculously. We see in the life of Hannah, that God provides Samuel, while she's barren, and God does it miraculously. We see in the life of Elizabeth, who's barren, God provides John the Baptist, to declare the coming of the Savior, of the Messiah. And he provides it miraculously. And then ultimately we see in the life of a, of a teenage girl, Mary. Where she's not barren. But he provides a miraculous birth nonetheless in a different way. She, having never been with a man, conceives a son. And God miraculously provides for all of mankind a Savior. Not who just beats the Philistines for a little while, but a, a Savior who defeats sin and death for all of us. What do we see here, guys? Here's what I see. I see that we have a God who in the midst of my sin in the midst of my distraction, in the midst of my pride, in the midst of me behaving in a way that ignores his even existence and love, 
because he's faithful, because he loves, because he's made a covenant. He provides a savior. And all of Judges points to the ultimate judge, the ultimate savior, who saves completely. Amen? I hope that you see in the birth of Samuel, of Samson, that God is demonstrating again that he's gracious and that he's merciful. You may ask, I'm going to close, how bad did it get? How bad did it get for the people of Israel in this moment? And you need only to look to Psalm 106. Verse 34. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood. The blood of their sons and daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people. He abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nations so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them. They were brought into subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant. He relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say amen. Praise the Lord. As we look around today, at where we've come, we introspectively look into our own lives and as we look around at the culture today and see what's happening. May we say, save us, O Lord our God. Gather us from the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Amen? May we also say this, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting because he has provided a Savior. I don't want anyone to be confused today by this message and think that as I talk about our culture and as I talk about the way we're supposed to live, that somehow what I'm saying is you need to do this and do that and do this and do that to somehow earn God's favor absolutely the contrary. That's not the gospel. Here's the gospel. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In the midst of our sin and rejection, Jesus came and he paid the price. And it is finished. And in God's gracious salvation, we respond. Not with, I'm going to do a whole bunch of stuff to earn brownie points. But we respond with grateful worship and recognize that our God has saved us and now I'm going to respond and live a life that brings him glory. Amen? Because the will of God for our lives will produce in us, it will produce in us the, the realities of a salvation that's already occurred. And how crazy would it be for us, like the people of Israel, to look in the face of a great salvation and a great God and then reject him 
and continue in to the philosophies and the worship of the idols of our day. The people of Israel had a gracious God who loved them and saved them. And instead of turning to him in their time of need, we see in Psalm 106, they turned to the idols of Canaan and sacrificed their own children to somehow gain favor from these idols. How ridiculous would it be for us to look in the face of a salvation and a God who loves us and who's done everything for us and to continue, as Jeremiah says, when we have living water, to continue to turn to drink from cisterns of dirt. And that's what we do when we live into the culture and pursue the idols of our day instead of pursuing Christ as our greatest treasure. Let's pursue Christ together as our greatest treasure. Amen? Let's pray. Oh God, we cry out to you because we need your eyes. Your eyes are the ones that matter. Our eyes are so prone to deception. Our eyes are so prone to distraction. Our eyes are so easily attracted to other pursuits. Help us to see what's evil in your eyes. And to turn to you, the great Savior, the greatest judge, the one who has defeated the greatest enemy. Help us to look to you and to pursue you as our greatest joy. Pursue you as our greatest treasure. Recognizing in this life we'll have tribulation. Recognizing in this life we will have loss. As I pray this morning, in this place, as, as we pray together in closing here, think of a very close friend of mine who just lost his wife two days ago. Three young girls. And those of us in this room who have experienced great loss, we see in the Word of God that amidst great tragedy, Christ can still be our greatest joy. He is in control. He has to be our ultimate thing. If we make other things our ultimate thing, when we lose them, we fall apart. So God, this morning, help us to make you our ultimate, to keep you on the throne, to not fall into idolatry, but to worship you and you alone. Don't let us be distracted. Don't let our affections be drawn elsewhere. Let our affections go to you. In Jesus' name, everybody said.